Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster, Dean Linky. Uniting coaches at every level of the game, around the love of the game, we are United Soccer Coaches. Now, here's our host, Dean Linky. The U.S. men's national soccer team hired a new general manager in June, a three-time World Cup star and a U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer, Ernie Stewart. One of his first jobs, and perhaps the biggest job, was hiring the next coach of the U.S. men's national team. He hired Greg Berhalter. Ernie Stewart will kick off this week's United Soccer Coaches podcast. And then after Ernie, will be joined by Seth Taylor, who, along with MLS veteran and Olympian Patrick Iani, set out to accomplish something huge, transform the mental, emotional, and spiritual foundation that America is building its soccer players on with a goal of raising the ceiling on the potential of players created in the American system. And they've taken a step toward doing that by creating two therapeutic guidebooks. These guidebooks are designed to shift the culture by expanding and transforming the awareness of parents and coaches as to how we project so many unconscious needs and expectations on our kids. The guidebooks are called On Frame, exploring the depths of parenting in the world of youth soccer and the coaching revolution, an interactive guide to finding joy and excellence in coaching. Seth Taylor is their author, and he also joins me on the program, which starts after this message from Team Snap. Still managing your club or league on paper and spreadsheets? Go paperless with Team Snap. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, they have way fewer paper cuts. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to TeamSnap.com to find out more. Once again, here's Dean Linky. This is the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. I am Dean Linky, and I am with one of my favorite all-time players. If you've Listen to this show after the last three or four years. You know that I was the senior press officer for the 1994 U.S. World Cup team, and you know how much I loved Ernie Stewart. Everybody loves Ernie, in fact, and Ernie Stewart, now the general manager of the U.S. men's national team, appointed that job in June of 2018. He's in the Hall of Fame. He was in three World Cups. He's one of only 17 men's players with 100-plus caps, and he joins me now. Ernie, thanks for being with us. No problem at all. Yeah, Ernie, I always enjoyed, uh, you're such a great professional. You're always so good to me and all of the staff, so it's great to be reconnected with you after so many years. And Ernie, before we get into uh, probably the you know the most intriguing questions, that is the coaching search and how you settled on Burhalter, just remind everybody and take as much time as you can what you remember about being discovered by U.S. soccer when they put it together that you had an American parent uh, and then Bora bringing you in. Remind us all of that, because I was pretty exciting well that was for me like a, a dream come true i remember growing up as a as a young child and uh watching the dutch national team play in holland where i grew up pretty much most of my life i wanted to play for a national team at one moment my life was, up until 12 years old was uh, everything that i did was was american so for my for my own recollection that was uh playing for the u.s men's national team and and then once that came along uh, uh in a certain point in my career uh, i remember people told me to reach out because uh, I was American, and I should let them know that I was an American. So um, through, I, I want to say Tom King, who is still with the with the federation as we uh, as we speak, and uh, has has meant a great deal in that, and making sure that uh, Bora was aware about myself. And um, so Bora came and visited me when I played for uh, Willem II 
Um, I remember having a conversation with him at dinner um, that, to my liking, did not go very well at all. Uh, he asked me all kinds of questions. Uh, he just, I left uh, wondering if I, uh, if I answered the questions right. But it was, it was good. So uh, in the end, I was happy that I uh, played for the national team. My, my debut was uh, under Bob Gansler, so that was a little bit earlier. But um, it really became uh, a deal after uh, I met with Bora and, and was able to join for the 1994 World Cup. And ever since then, uh, uh, up until 2005, I, uh, I played a lot of games for the, for the men's national team. Indeed you did. Do you, do you remember the first game you played for Bora, where it was? Was it overseas or in the States? No, actually, that one was in the States. So my first one was uh, with Bob Gensler. That was overseas. That was in uh, Portugal in November of 1990, I want to say that was. And I just remember that uh, uh, Figo was, uh, I thought it was Figo that played his first game, but also Cautu, uh, the defender, and, uh, and Vito Baia. Uh, they had their first game for Portugal and went on to have a fantastic career. And I remember that we didn't touch the ball much in, uh, in that game. Um, did a lot of defending, only lost 1-0, I believe it was. But um, And then after that, with Bora, that was in the States right before we played a U.S. Cup. I want to say it was in Denver that we played a, a played a game, and then we obviously uh, played the U.S. Cup after that. As I said, a U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame career, Ernie. If you had to pick just one or two moments wearing the USA uniform, what are your best memories? Well, I'll just pick one because that's the one that I really dear to my heart, and uh, uh, that was in the 2002 World Cup when I uh, got to captain the U.S. Men's National Team for the for the first game uh, against uh, against Portugal. Uh, once again, um, yeah, that was a, a very very special moment that brought me back to uh, what we talked about in the beginning of of standing there in front of a in front of the flag and singing the national anthem, but um, also being able to. Uh, um, to lead your country at that moment. So that was like uh, one of the biggest moments of my career. Just talk about the decision when you were done playing. When did you know, Ernie, that um, you know maybe you didn't want to be a coach, but you wanted to, in fact, be in management? And talk about that transition, particularly over in Holland. I know you helped build some great clubs over there as part of the management team and then coming over to the U.S. But when did you know that's what you wanted to do? So I did a lot of coaching uh, while I was still playing. So I did that at my old, old amateur club. Uh, so even when I was professional, I made sure to um, keep up. One, I had my coaches badges, but two, also, you know, um, just just see if that's to your liking. So I did a lot of youth uh, uh, coaching at that time. Um, uh, really liked it, but uh, towards the end of my career, I found out that uh, just in the management positions within soccer, that, that intrigued me uh, way more. Had a lot to do with myself and trying to find um, um, everybody knows what it is to be in the zone as if you're a professional uh, player. Um, it's one of these brilliant moments that everything that you do kind of like turns to gold. Um, you never really know how to get there, uh, but you can lose it in a, in a second. Um, and that has always intrigued me. So towards the end of my career, I was always searching for how can I help others uh, be in that zone longer? Uh, one, for it was towards the end of my career for myself. But then moving on, I was like, um, how, can I, how can I help others do that? So that kind of guided me towards, uh, one, being in soccer, but then, two, uh, finding out in a lot of, uh, uh, once again, when I was older and played for Nakbreda, but also with uh, – with DC United uh, being in the, in, in the council of your uh, as, a, as a players rep, um, I don't know those uh, the management side really intrigued me. And uh, when I signed my last uh, soccer contract uh, for VV Zembo, um, it was in my contract that I'd become head of the academy after my career. So that kind of uh, set everything off, and uh, uh, my career ended a little bit short because of an injury to my uh, to my knee. 
And at that moment, somebody believed in uh, in myself, and, and they were looking for a technical director at that time. So I went through that interview process, and one and one became two. And uh, before I knew it, I was. Uh, in this role. Well, it's interesting, too, because just like you talked about, uh, you played over in Holland and came over to the U.S. with the national team and then ended up uh, finishing, in, as you said, at Major League Soccer as well before uh, that final little tune-up. But then you did the same thing as far as you know your training ground for management over in Holland before joining Philadelphia of Major League Soccer. When you got the call to come to MLS in that massive role, talk about that process. Playing for the uh, national team has given me so much pride and, and has given so much back to uh, or given me so much uh, that I also wanted to give back to, um, you know, at, at that moment to the soccer in the United States. Um, so I took, uh, I went from VVV to one of my old clubs, Nakleda, where I was four and a half years. And, and, all, and after that, AV Olegman and all these three clubs were, were totally different. So VVV, uh, once again, somebody believed in me and they let me do, uh, you know, my job every single day. Um, I was allowed to make mistakes, but they helped me guide me forward. Um, uh, going to Nakreda was actually a club that was uh, didn't have money, but um, so you had to learn to be uh, very creative in, in your thinking and, and trying to uh, build a, a roster and a team without nece- not necessarily having a, a big budget. Um, uh, so you try to fix something today and hope it worked tomorrow. That was kind of like how Nakreda uh, was, a beautiful club, uh, and I learned a lot over there in, in that way. Um, and then I went to AZ Olegmata, and that, I have to say that club has formed me to the person I am today, a club with, uh, with vision um, that have this uh, big goal in, uh, uh, that they have in front of them in the horizon, and they work towards that every single day. And no matter what the score is of the day or next week or uh, losing a couple of games or winning a game, they always stick to their goal on the, on the horizon. And I have to say that has... Uh, um, that has formed me to I am uh, who I am today. So that is what I brought to uh, to the United States uh, for myself uh, and and who I am and how I try to guide uh, and guided uh, the Philadelphia Union and what I'm trying to do now with the U.S. Men's National Team as well. Well, yeah, you talk about big goals. I mean, uh, you you had a front row seat like we all did, particularly a man who represented the USA in not one, not two, but three World Cups. When they failed to qualify for the most recent World Cup, you knew that uh, there was going to be a lot of attention on the U.S. men's national team. And this was a big hire. What made you say, you know what, I can do it. I'm your man. Once again, I wanted to do something for my for my country, and that was why I came back to the United States. At first, I was with the Philadelphia Union, and, and later on, I always felt, um, you know, if once again, if you you have a vision, you have a plan, uh, and you stick to that, no matter what um, the score is of the day, um, you are going to be successful um, within means and and within reason of who you are and where you are as a country at this moment, but also where you want to go to. And um, I don't know. I uh, I have always felt that I could help out in that uh, regard. And obviously, somebody can't do it by itself. So you need a lot of good people because um, that, for me, is is leading and uh, managing is is not so much doing everything yourself, but making sure you have uh, in a lot of positions you have smarter people than yourself. Right? Then to be successful in their uh, in their specialty. Um, that's what leadership is about, and that's what I try to bring to the table. 
And of course, the team needed leadership. They were searching for a head coach. They hire you. You were instrumental in finding the coach. Before we talk about Mr. Burhalter, talk about the process and what uh, you tried to accomplish as you considered all the candidates. Well, first and foremost, uh, the, the important part, like I said, is is have a vision of what are you, where are you right now, and and where do you want to go to, and who do you want to be? Uh, what are the values, and what is what is our culture? And try to stick to that. Um, so that was one of the most important parts of uh, of the process, and making sure um, having a lot of conversation. One, having ideas, but two, having a lot of conversation, and making sure that you know what those values are um, uh, going forward, and making sure that they're all embedded into the choice that you're going to make for uh, for the future. Because uh, it's not a not a short term. Uh, I wasn't looking for a coach for four months. I was looking for a coach for a longer term. Uh, and period. So uh, once that job profile was set, um, it kind of made that part easier than uh, having conversations with uh, coaches all over, but sticking to those uh, uh, characteristical traits that are important for, for the coach. So, um, And once you have a checklist on, on those certain things that are very important, um, it makes it easier to get to your uh, to your candidate. So and that is the process that, that happened. And understandably, um, you know, if you get knocked out in November of uh, last year, um, and then it takes almost a year or a little bit more than a year to uh, to get a new uh, head coach, I understand that there's a lot of patience that goes with that. But once again, there's a lot that happened within the U.S. Uh, Soccer Federation from uh, one not qualifying, uh, Sunil um, stepping down, uh, new president, uh, World Cup bid, then the general manager doesn't start until the 1st of August. So there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of moving parts within the uh, within the federation. But happy where we are right now, and, and um, now finally you can pretty much say that the building has started for uh, for the future. All right, and it will start under the direction of Greg Burhalter. You had a lot of great candidates, including a lot of prominent teammates of yours during your days wearing the red, white, and blue. Why is Greg Burhalter the perfect choice to lead the USA back to some glory? Well, it, it, it all goes down to, once again, um, you know, who are we as a country? Where do we want to go to? And one of the things that uh, that really stood out um, with Greg and the interviews that I had with him, he's very detail-oriented. He's very much known for a, a specific playing style. Um, but more importantly, trying to implement a playing style as a coach is like one of the most important things and, and the most difficult thing. A lot of times you will see that um, people play different systems and different ways. Uh, it's not something I and we necessarily believe in, um, but uh, to each his uh, own choice. But being able to implement a, a playing style that the identity of a, of a team is, is well received by, uh, by everybody that's uh, watching the team and that, that culture and those values that we have, that, is, that you can see that back on the field. Um, also, his, his in the interview process, the, his thought process about um, how we're going to influence these players, uh, not only when they are in camp, but outside of camp was uh, was impressive. And um, you know, one of the uh, main things that I look in, and not only the head coach, but in every single person that I want to work with, is a growth mindset. Uh, what do you want to do to become better? Because if you become better yourself every single day and you are developing yourself um, as a coach or as an assistant coach or as a video analyst or a strategy analyst, high performance, um, that will benefit uh, the players. And if we benefit, uh, make sure that the players get better, I'm pretty sure the product on the field will get better as well. So 
um, you know, the, the combination of all those things uh, uh, was uh, was very important for me, and that's why Greg uh, came out as the uh, the leading candidate. Great answer. A broad stroke question for you here as we we wrap up our time with Ernie Stewart, the general manager for the U.S. men's national team. Under the Ernie Stewart, Greg Berhalter regime, Ernie, if you can, paint a little picture of short and long-term goals for the U.S. men's national team. Well, short-term is one uh, to get players aware of what we want to do um, and, and how we want to do it. So uh, having a, a specific way of, uh, of playing, making sure that our players understand what they do. And with that, in short-term, we want to see progress. Um, that is uh, that is very, very important. Um, every time they come to camp, every time that we have an interaction with them, we want to uh, make a step in the, in the right direction. Um, and then obviously short-term, another short-term thing is, is making sure that you also get results on the field because that's what what um, soccer is about and, and, and representing our country is about. So you have success on the field, everything flows over from that. Uh, and the longer-term goal is, uh, is making sure that we... Uh, you know, this goes this goes very far apart from uh, wanting to do very well uh, one in uh, or one qualifying for uh, for 22 and doing well at that World Cup in 22. There's also that we want to change the the way that people look at uh, the U.S. men's national team and uh, the way that we play and and where we stand as a as a country in total within the world of uh, within the world of FIFA. Those are the those are the longer term goals. Let's have a little bit of fun because uh, if you remember, and I always remember, I still have the suits. Actually, in fact, uh, now that I think about it, maybe my <laughs> oldest son could wear them. But uh, we got outfitted with some nice uh, custom suits, and when the World Cup was over, you gave me your two, which was an honor because you you're such a great guy and a Hall of Famer. Unfortunately, I don't think I can get one leg into the suit though right now, Ernie. I, I guess that's life happening, huh? Yeah, that is life after uh, after our careers, uh, early on careers. So yeah, I don't think that's anything to be. Ashamed about though <laughs> i was a skinny little kid at that time yeah so was i and that was uh, living the dream indeed ernie gosh you bring a smile to my face i want to wish you and your beautiful family happy holidays and i want to congratulate you you're the perfect hire for that job and i know you made the right hire in the next coach and i also really appreciate uh, i know you got a busy schedule i appreciate you giving us some time no problem at all thank you very much Dean. so great to spend time with ernie stewart the general manager of the u.s men's national team and i'm looking forward i think you will be too to our next segment with Seth Taylor. He, along with former MLS veteran Patrick Iani, have created therapeutic guidebooks designed to shift the culture by expanding and transforming the awareness of parents and coaches as to how we project so many unconscious needs and expectations on our kids. Pretty fascinating. And Patrick and Seth, our guests, believe that if we can get that right... We could even win a World Cup. That's how big a role parents might play in this whole thing. And we'll learn more with Seth Taylor after this message. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. 
This is Dean Linky, host of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, and I want to remind every one of you listening to get registered now for the 2019 United Soccer Coaches Convention in Chicago in early January. It is the place to be for education, for networking, the MLS draft, the NWSL draft, youth soccer, high school soccer, college soccer, pro soccer, coaches and administrators. You'll want to be in Chicago as part of the 2019 United Soccer Coaches Convention. Make it happen. Make it happen now. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org, click on convention, and get signed up. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team SAP. I want to thank U.S. Men's National Team General Manager Ernie Stewart for setting the table for us. And as I told you before the last break, super excited about our next guest, but let me set it up for you, folks. After almost 20 years of coaching youth sports, author Seth Taylor got tired of seeing soccer players hit a ceiling in their capacity to take risk, be creative, and find joy in the game they put so much time and energy into over their young lives. So when Seth and his friend business partner, former MLS veteran and Olympian Patrick Iani. They set out to accomplish something huge, transform the mental, emotional, and spiritual foundation that America is building its soccer players on with the goal of raising the ceiling on the potential of players created in the American system. To that end, Seth has authored two therapeutic guidebooks. One is called On Frame, exploring the depths of parenting in the world of youth soccer. Again, that's On Frame, exploring the depths of parenting in the world of youth soccer and the other book is called The Coaching Revolution an interactive guide to finding joy and excellence in coaching once again it's The Coaching Revolution an interactive guide to finding joy and excellence in coaching now these guidebooks are designed to shift the culture by expanding and transforming the awareness of parents and coaches as to how we project so many unconscious needs and expectations on our kids as this awareness rises parents and coaches come to see how we damage the relationship that our kids develop with the game. The drama that exists on your average sideline weekend is pervasive and toxic and has to be transformed on a cultural level if we are ever going to succeed both on and off the field as a nation. It's the goal of Iani Training that every parent and coach in America have this experience of transformation so even they can find more joy in the coaching and parenting experience because transformation is greater than education. Now, who better to educate us about these two therapeutic guidebooks, On Frame and The Coaching Revolution, than their author, Seth Taylor, who joins me now. Seth, thanks for being with us. Appreciate the opportunity, Dave. Well, Seth, I can tell you the United Soccer Coaches Director of Coaching Education, Ian Barker, also speaks highly about you and Patrick and what you're doing for the soccer community. So, Ian and our organization also thank you for being on. With that, let's go to work and learn more. And obviously, Seth, you and Patrick certainly seem to understand the issues with parents in youth sports and how they've always been some sort of the most complex and difficult for youth clubs to deal with. So let's start with, uh, in your mind, what's the root of this issue? To give it a little background, you know, Pat and I, since the U.S. didn't make the World Cup, you know, we've, we've been, you know, a lot of people are open to, to you know, that big question, like, you know, what is wrong with the American system? And we've been asking kind of a, just a much, much deeper question about why have we not produced superstars why why do american players play with such a kind of regimented 
kind of way of way of, of looking at the game and why we why do we lack that creativity? Why do we not why are we not producing? By, by now we should be able to produce players and we and everybody's ranting about Pulisic, but even even a guy like him on the Champions League team is still struggling to find the time. You know, the consistent starting superstardom, and 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 we could even argue that he wasn't really produced in the American system. So we've been asking this question: like, what is it about American players? What is our system producing? And what we're seeing is, is for the most part, Pat and I have been looking at it, and especially we were looking at him because Pat was kind of the stereotype for this. Is Pat was one of these guys coming out of college that coming out of UCLA is an American, an all-American. Everybody's saying this guy should play a senior national team, should play in the World Cup, should become something. But what we found. And, and as I've been working with professional players one-on-one, doing life coaching and therapy work, what I'm finding is American players producing this system have a level of emotional anxiety that produces kind of a ceiling. Like there is, so we've been talking about raising the ceiling, and that ceiling is set by an unconscious relationship with the game that gets developed in the American system that, that, that is very parental. So a player's, if, a player, if a player develops a relationship with the game of soccer right, as they grow up, Right. They have a certain way of orienting themselves to the game. And because of the American system, because of the way that parents situate themselves on the sideline with kids at such a young age and there's so much influence, and because the pay-to-play system allows parents such intense influence in a game, the relationship that kids develop with the game tends to be wrapped around the relationship they're developing with their parents. And the problem with that is that a kid from ages 0 to about 10 is in what we call the developmental years. And in those years, the development that they are doing is 100% about developing a deep sense of identity that's rooted in unconditional love. That is, the, that is literally the task of childhood. And we throw them on a sideline at age four, and that relationship, that identity development starts to get very, very, very confused because they start developing a sense of their identity, who they are, is wrapped up in what they do. And so that kind of American culture of what do you do, what do you do, what do you do, and finding value in what we do starts at this really, really, really early age. And when kids, you know, you take your average, you know, you take the kids that the American system is producing, the Jordan Morrises of the world, you know, the, the, uh, the Kellen Acostas of the world, these guys are developing their identity alongside this, who, this what we do kind of thing. So by the time they hit 14, 15, 16 years old, that there is a there is a certain element of the game is where I find my love, and so I find that American players and Pat and I have both found this, and we're shouting it from the mountaintops at this point. American players are earning love through soccer, and that means there's a deep inherent risk in the game, and so players they hit an emotional ceiling very very quickly. A lot of these uh, a lot of these what the academies are developing right now, and all these homegrown players they get signed. And they hit a ceiling, and and then get cut after a year or two. You know, we're we're touting, oh, we get it, we develop all these American players. And we're not really. We're developing kids that once they get to the pro level, they they find that they are unable to take the risk necessary and assess their weaknesses well to be able to actually excel at that level. Kids are getting dropped by crazy. What you're seeing is the the academy systems are developing players. Those players are coming in. Those players are playing a year or two at a pro level, and then they're getting dropped. They're not, we're not developing players and selling them. We're not developing players that are continuing to improve, improve, improve. And what I'm discussing behind the scenes with players one-on-one constantly, because I speak, I'm a keynote at the Rookie Symposium every year, is I end up talking to guys who, who want out. you got guys, I mean, Andrew Wenger just, just retired, right? At age 27, you're getting guys that are retiring early because their relationship with the game is so toxic that they can't possibly find joy in what they're doing. 
And that is what Pat and I are seeking to end. Not just, we want, we want to get to a player, I say to players all the time, you deserve to enjoy this. And it's not just the fact that I want them to find joy, it's that players that find joy get better. So big picture in your mind, how does changing this situation lead to winning a World Cup, Seth? Well, that's the thing, right, is that what we have to do is find players that once they hit a pro contract, they still have the ability to improve. They have the ability to assess their weaknesses because they're emotionally secure. They are mentally, emotionally secure. They're mentally, emotionally strong. They're capable of assessing their weaknesses, improving their weaknesses, and fighting against a competition that's completely crushing them. What you find is you'll get a player... Uh, I'll use an example. A few years ago, a player named Shea Adekoya, okay? He came to me at the rookie symposium because he was having something happen to him mentally and emotionally at, in training camp. He's a rookie. He's a homegrown product coming out of UCLA for the Seattle Sounders. And he's coming in, and this is a guy with all the talent in the world. I mean, Chris Henderson, you know, the technical director of the Sounders, he told me, he said he can do things that no one else can do. He just has his book. But he has all the technical ability, and he's a freak of nature athlete, right? I mean, top, top, top notch athlete. Well, he'd hit an emotional ceiling, and he wasn't, his, his, literally, his body was shutting down because he was a man among boys at a youth level. He was a man among boys at a college level, and to a certain level at a USL pro level because he was playing with S2 a little bit. And then he found that when he was with the senior national team, something in him was retreating and shutting down. And I literally went and watched him practice one day, and Schmetzer was just like, yeah, just walk around, and if you want to pull him out of a drill, that's fine. And I'm watching him, and every single movement, everything he's doing on the field, he's hiding. He's hiding, he's hiding, he's hiding. And I pulled him off, and I showed him his movements. I said, what do you see here? And he says, I'm hiding. I'm like, right, why? I don't know. I don't know. It's this deep, unconscious thing. So for a player, for me, winning the World Cup, in the United States is about being able to take a guy like him, removing that fear, removing that, that something, that unconscious thing that he gets incapacitated by, and, and so that he literally can push into that space and get better and better and better until we're taking the Shayatakoyas of the world, the Eric Hurtados of the world, guys like that, and we're finding that we can raise that ceiling that they keep getting better and better and better instead of producing players that are capable of just surviving for a few years before they finally get out, we'll never find that space. Like, it's not just about, you know, everybody's, like, touting that top player. What, who's that top player that Christian Pulisic? Like, I'm like, no, we need to raise the ceilings for the base players. Those, the, the everyday average MLS player that the American system is producing has to be more than a survivor. MLS teams are not being driven by homegrown products. They're being driven by foreign products. You know, their championships are not being won by homegrown players. You know, there's an occasional anomaly, but they're not being won by homegrown players. They're being won by foreign players. And we've got to find a way to change the way our players orient themselves to the game and to their own personal development. Seth, you say, quote, transformation is greater than education, end quote. What exactly does that mean? Our thing is there's there's this big category. And in, in when you look at youth clubs around the country, right, there's this big category called parent education. And there's not, to this point, you know, I coached the club for 15 years, okay, and I coached for about 20 years total and lots of in, in several other sports i've coached basketball as well but i coached club soccer for about 15 years and parent education was kind of a, a box that you try to check so that we can just kind of get rid of it because it was the biggest problem for everybody there's constant drama there was there's certain resources that have been made like the positive coaching alliance pca is, is a resource that's been created but the thing is none of it's really working 
none of it's working. And, and Pat and I were asking this question, like, why this is the biggest problem clubs have. It's the biggest drain they have financially, emotionally, mentally. It's the biggest drain on their coaches. It's the biggest reason coaches like myself finally just can't do it anymore because they have to spend so much time and energy dealing with this parent drama issue, right? Well, we, you know, Pat and I, once we became dads, we started to realize why. Because parenting is the deepest thing in the whole wide world. It's like literally the deepest thing a human being can experience is trying to raise another human being well. And no matter what you know, it doesn't seem to change the fact that parenting comes from your guts. It comes from your unconscious. It comes from your own story. It comes from how you were parented and how you carry that kind of on an unconscious level. Okay, I mean, Carl Jung said that 70% of what we do every day is dictated by the unconscious. So that's where we're doing our parenting from. We finally started to go, you can't educate parents. You can't tell them what to do and what not to do. I don't want somebody telling me what I have to do and what not to do. But if we can open our eyes, if we can give them an experience where they are emotionally, mentally, where their eyes are open, their hearts open, their minds open to something new or or them seeing what's actually happening in their relationship with their child and what's really going on, then they start to shift. Because there's no question, a parent's love, are you a a dad, Dean? I am. Yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. The love you have for your kid is not like other things. It has its own category. It has its own power. It has its own it's strength. It's the greatest love of all, has, right? Yeah. It is. It's the greatest love of all. And it also has its own type of insanity, right? There's this kind of craziness that happens and how it plugs into these parts of you that sometimes you don't even know are there. And we end up being trying to be a better version of our own parents, right? And we constantly feel guilty. We constantly feel... What we're trying to do is just open parents' hearts and minds through an experience of that love they have for their kids. So a lot of the exercises in the book are actually done in relationship to their child so that they can walk away going, I didn't know that's what I was doing. I didn't know that that effect was being had on my child. And that now the game, instead of being a place where damage is being done, it becomes a place where a bond is being built. You know, So at the time the kids walk out of the club game when they're 16, 17, 18 years old, there's a strength there, there's memories, there's good memories there, as opposed to what I see for the most part and what Pat sees for the most part in a lot of our training, which is kids walking away going, I never want to do that again. You know, walking away from, I've had kids that are D1 recruits. Once, they're, once they finally got permission, they just walk away from the game altogether because they're like, it's, it's a toxic space. And the relationship they have with their parents in that space is a toxic thing as well. We certainly uh, live in a different era now, and there seems to be a cultural progression to these issues for sure. Seth, give me an example of where you see these issues present in younger kids and then how that manifests in professionals and then in ex-players. I'll give me an example. Like Eric Hurtado is a great example. He just, he just got traded to Fort Kansas City. He's 28 years old now. He's been in the league for, I think, seven years. Um, first game he ever played. Okay. He was like six years old, scored eight goals. Right? There's a video of this, right? And scores eight goals, and right away you hear his parents going crazy. Now, he came from a pretty tough situation. Everybody's going crazy. Everybody's just praising and worshiping him, and he starts to develop this relationship with the game. Like, if I do this, then I get that, right? But right away, that comes with an inherent risk. Everything has a shadow. For kids, everything has a shadow, Right? If you if you tell you know if if you keep praising a kid's abilities, good job, good job, you're so good, you're so good, you're so good, you're so good. The child develops this inherent kind of, well, what if I'm not? What if I make a mistake? What if I fail? What if I fail? What if I fail? Because a child is not seeking, you know, they don't, a, a young child is not seeking, can I be good at something? A young child is seeking, am I safe? 
am I valuable no matter what? Right? They're constantly, they're like heat-seeking missile men. They're constantly seeking that security, that sense of what if I fail, am I still loved? What if I fail, am I still good? Right? That's what they're actually seeking. That's what the developmental task of a child is. And so Eric is out there and he's doing that. Well, right away, this anxiety starts to come in. Right? And I see it, like I've been training this kid, he's nine years old, and that, that anxiety is there. It's very, very present. And all I have to do to find it in a session is bring in a kid his age that's a little bit better than him. And the second he fails, his body tightens up, he starts to cinch up, he starts, I'll get, even tears will come. And we'll stop in that moment and we'll kind of find where that anxiety kind of sits in the body, like where he's holding it, he'll get tight in the chest, he'll get knocked in his stomach. <clears throat> we find out where that kind of, it's a trauma, to be honest with you. And we find out kind of where that sits. Well, I see that manifest in MLS players. My first year speaking at the symposium, I had guys lining up afterwards talking about depression, self-harm. I had several, several guys come up to me and talk to me about how much they hated soccer. I mean, hated soccer. Guys that are currently playing in Major League Soccer, how much they hate it. I've had a kid who's on the national team <clears throat> talk to me one-on-one and tell me how badly he wanted to quit because he hated the game, Right. And he's playing it, and I said, well, of course you can't do that, no, can you? And he's like, no, I can't. It's like, all right, well, we need to find a way to shift this thing because you're in this for a while. And he has to be, and it feels like a prison to him, right? And it's just because he's, we talk about it all the time when we do sessions together. He's like, oh, there you are. You're earning love again. You're earning love again. You're earning love again. It's this constant sense of earning love. And if that is the nature of the relationship with the game, the risk is too great. Your body and the, the self, kind of unconscious self, will constantly be seeking safety. And what you said, and it, what happens in a sense is you have you have grown men. You know, I mean, they're twenty two, they're twenty three, they're twenty four years old, but they're grown men that are carrying these kind of younger parts of themselves, still seeking safety, still seeking love, still trying to get that thing they need. I had Shay, who I talked about earlier. <laughs> He's in Denmark now. And he's really shifted his relationship with the game. And he's playing in the Super League in Denmark. And he calls me not too long ago and he says, can we do a session? And he says, I, I, I hate it when my coaches yell at me. I think it might be, you know, the language barrier, but when they yell at me, something happens to me and I don't know what it is, but it, it tightens me up. Well, we kind of started doing some real work with it and we kind of found that there was these young parts of him, like really younger parts of him that were still kind of, he was kind of carrying with him. And those parts were the parts that were so scared of being yelled at. Yeah, and once we kind of dealt with some of that stuff, did some healing around that, he found that all of a sudden he had the capacity to handle that no problem. He could kind of what we call chew the chew the meat and spit out the bones. He could handle the yelling because he could hear the input and it, and it didn't hit him so hard. And that's what we're trying to shift. It is very deep, and and it's pervasive across the board. And you're seeing it in other sports too. You're seeing guys like Kevin Love and Demar Derozan in the NFL. Guys stepping up and they they're talking about it as mental health. And I think it, it, we do a disservice sometimes when we don't bring in that emotional component. But it, they're, you know, they're talking about depression. They're talking about these things they experience because these kids are being raised in the American system, earning love, earning love, earning love, earning love. It's a very, very deep thing, and it has to shift on a cultural level. We have to shake the ground completely if we're ever going to find kind of the ability to raise that ceiling and get better. You're hearing the voice of Seth Taylor. He's authored two new therapeutic guidebooks on frame, exploring the depths of parenting in the world of youth soccer and the coaching revolution, an interactive guide to finding joy and excellence in coaching. I received them. They are a wonderful read. But why did you choose a guidebook, not a book or a set of videos or even an app? Why this specific format for your project, Seth? That's a good question. I, You know, we started, you know, 
everybody, when I, we would run it across friends and stuff, like they said, well, you know, you should make it an app. You should make it accessible. And Pat and I were both like, listen, if for us to do this, it's got to be effective. More than anything, we didn't want to create something that was just in the box you can check. We didn't want to make it something where we could just sell, sell, sell because we wanted to make a bunch of money. We are like, we have to change this thing. And it's a passion. You probably hear it in my voice. It's a passion for us. We have There's damage being done. And so our thing was, what's the most effective thing? And I think, it's my opinion that we are being trained as a culture to, to bring in digital information and dismiss it very, very quickly. Like, we bring it in. We digest it we lose it and and looking at an app or reading some little uh, inspirational quote on an app does not have a transformative effect so our whole goal was to kind of bring in let's be intentionally non-digital let's bring paper and pen back let's bring the the journal the diary back let's bring that thing that when mom is sitting in the car in the rain while kids training she's sitting there working through a process that is that intentionally slows herself down because i think human beings at some deep level are craving a deeper experience something slower or something to bring them back to the earth in a sense, you know, back to themselves. So we, we wanted to try to intentionally bring it out of that super fast-paced digital world because when, you know, if it, it really is, it's, we're trying to create a therapeutic experience and we don't do therapy in an app, right? If someone's seeing therapy, which I hope everyone in the world is doing, right, they do it slowly in relationship, right? And so what we're trying to do is create a therapeutic experience again and get back, gets back to that transformation is greater than education. We don't want to educate, we want to transform. And we feel like that's done better with some paper and with a more tactile experience with some paper and pen. So that's, that's basically why we created it that way. Okay, Seth. So what about the crazy parent? And for lack of a better word, and uh, with apologies to those that this might be speaking directly to, the, the one nut yeah. job on each team, how do you change that situation, Seth? And how do you get that parent to buy in? Yeah, that's like the number one question directors ask us when we, when we talk to directors of clubs. They're like, what about that one dad? I had this guy down in Portland was like, hey, how do you get that one dad? Or that one, you know, he's talking about that one person we're all. And I said, you know what, here's the, tr- the truth. We might not get that dad. That guy, he might hand the book and he might toss it in the garbage can. But if you get everybody else, okay, you, you, raise, you raise that the temperature on the team in a sense. Where, you know, if, if you get a 70% buy-in on your team and everyone's open, their consciousness starts to expand, they start to see more, feel more, experience more, then what happens is maybe they get him. Maybe that, that there's a collective movement on the team that starts to kind of bring the, the more extreme elements down to their level and starts to they start to bond together a little bit and work together to do that. One of the problems with the, with the quote-unquote crazy parent is that we all tend to look at the crazy parent and just go, well, at least I'm not like that person. And as a result, we, we think we're okay. We think we're normal. When the truth is your average parent is the problem. Your average parent is culturally saying, no, no, that we're doing this kind of subtle damage. So most of our kids are kind of, it's like a death by paper cuts kind of thing, right? So the kids are dying by paper cuts and we're looking at the one who's hacking away at his kid with a sword and saying, well, at least I'm not like him. And that's a real problem. That's the biggest problem. So Pat and I were saying, no, no, we're going to raise, we're going to go to the base level and try to bring this entire thing up and stop worrying about that one crazy parent that they do some nightline TV show about. Because we are using that to excuse ourselves for the more subtle damage that we're doing to our own kids. So give me your vision for what the world of youth soccer looks like 10 years from now, Seth. Every parent, let's assume, has gone through your program. What's the world look like? What it looks like is... We're, we have parents that are a lot more free, 
that are enjoying the game more because they don't feel the need to to push their kids. They don't feel the need to be to coach their kids. They don't feel the need to be a part of that process. They recognize parenting and coaching is a radically different thing and a different role and they see parenting for what it is which is my job is to love my kid no matter what not to make them do anything include have fun i don't have to make my kid have fun i'm going to sit back relax and stop taking so much responsibility i'm going to see a sideline that when i walk the sideline now i see parents pacing and chewing their nails i see parents screaming things that they have no idea what they're talking about i was at a game the other day i think the mom was yelling american football stuff you know like you know like it didn't make any sense but we see parents that are a lot more relaxed, that are checked out of that whole coaching environment because they recognize that I just get to be my, my parents' kid, my, my, my kid's parent, right? I get to let them be out there, play, experiment, and fail, and then I get to have this kind of free-flowing relationship. And as a result, of course, we see kids with a lot better relationship with the game. We see more joy. We see more fun. We see more passion. And we see those, the Eric Hurtados of the world being raised by the time they're 15, 16, 17, they love soccer so much that they keep experimenting, they keep trying things, they keep pushing, they have dreams of rather than just surviving, they're seeing themselves in the English Premier League, not for the reason of that will help me survive better, you know, but I gotta, I gotta do this because it's my passion. You know, I want to see the Jordan Morrises of the world so passionate about the game that they're just out there just trying and pushing and trying and pushing. And that's that's what we're going to see in 10 years if we can shift this thing on a cultural level. And maybe it takes longer than that. And we recognize that culture, culture change is not a overnight thing. My goal is that we win the World Cup before I die. Right? That's my goal. When, when I'm 90, if we win it, great. I want to be a part of that process. But 10, 10 years is enough time. We start shifting. If, if on frame, if we can get this in every single parent in the country, gets it in their hands, and they actually buy into this thing, we could shift this thing in a couple of years. Now, I know that's not realistic, but that's the goal. Seth Taylor and his friend and business partner, former MLS veteran and Olympian Patrick Iani. They created Iani Training, and then they set out to accomplish something huge, transform the mental, emotional, and spiritual foundation that America is building its soccer players on with the goal of raising the ceiling on the potential of players created in the American system. Again, to that end, they've got two therapeutic guidebooks on frame, as you just heard Seth talk about, trying to get that in the hand of every parent. It's on frame, exploring the depths of parenting in the world of youth soccer, and then also the coaching revolution, an interactive guide to finding joy and excellence in coaching. Great job setting the table. Seth, final question, how do folks get their hands on these therapeutic guidebooks? They are on Amazon. Okay, so you can get on Amazon. If you just type in my name, Seth Taylor, it'll pop up. But on frame and the coaching rep. Revolution book on Amazon.com, um, along with some other books that I've written for other other topics and things like that. Um, but we're also we're actually approaching more. Our, our goal is to actually get this into clubs, and we're getting into clubs, into associations, into leagues um, across the board. Washington State Youth Soccer Association is adopting it across the board in the state. So what we're trying to do is literally, I mean, and we're hoping to get it in U.S. soccer. We're going to be at the USC convention next month, just walking around, handing it to people, trying to get everyone on board. So because if we get it, we get a larger scale like that. Obviously, we can offer it at a better price, and we're trying to we're trying to do that, and make it as accessible as possible. But we want this thing to be 
standard standard across the board in our in our country. So, but it's on Amazon. So if someone wanted right now is like doesn't want to wait for their club to adopt it, you can get it. You can just go to Amazon and pick it up and and uh, and go through it yourself and then hand it to somebody else and show somebody else so that we can start uh, spreading the word. It's a big issue. Seth Taylor, Patrick Iani, approaching the issue head on. As he said, he'll be at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. Try to find him. Seth, thanks for being with us on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Thank you, Dean. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks to Seth and to Ernie Stewart, the general manager for the U.S. Men's National Team. want to thank Sean Chevrel, Mike Knipper, and the entire gang at United Soccer Coaches. From each and every one of us at United Soccer Coaches, we wish you the happiest of holidays, and we look forward to next week. Our December 27th edition will focus on the four candidates running for the open vice president position as part of the United Soccer Coaches Board. You'll hear from all four next week. It's the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by TeamSnap. I'm Dean Linky. Happy holidays, everybody. Managing your club or league shouldn't feel like a second job. With Team Snap, it doesn't have to. They help customers save their time and sanity on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to TeamSnap.com to find out more.